Well, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Rich. Uh, I'm part of the Woodall Small Group. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10 uh, and the first part of chapter 11. We've been studying the book of Acts for a few months now, and you'll remember uh, that we said that although we, the book is traditionally titled The Acts of the Apostles, it's helpful to think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And our passage today is another clear example about how God is at work Himself in building His church. And we'll see here that the Holy Spirit addresses what was perhaps one of the most perplexing questions for Christians up to this time. Who is the gospel for? In this passage, we'll see that God challenges the cultural assumptions, erases the former divisions, and gives a very clear statement that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. So we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 10, all of, the, of chapter 10, and then the first 18 verses of chapter 11. It's a big chunk, so you're going to have to hang, hang in there with me uh, as I read. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descended, descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by the holy angel to send you, for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the country of Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is, he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. I'm just going to rest for a minute now. A number of years ago, uh, I heard a sermon. A sermon was on uh, two, two verses in Scripture. It was a, an entire sermon on just two verses. And that sermon went for 45 minutes. So by my calculations, we're going to be here till Tuesday. <laughs> that joke worked really well in the first service. Um, no, I don't think it will take us till Tuesday. The, point of, the main point of our story is very straightforward. So I think, I think if we just uh, take a few minutes to look at the big picture of what's going on here, we'll be able to see the main point very clearly. Uh, then we'll look at some of the details in the passage, and, and then we'll be through. One of the things I, I hope that you noticed about that passage, besides the fact that it was very long, I hope that you noticed how much repetition there was. Did you notice how much repetition there was in the passage? Right? We have Cornelius' vision repeated three times and then referred to again in another verse. We have Peter's vision uh, repeated twice and then referred to again in another verse. We have the Holy Spirit coming on those who are listening repeated twice. And Luke, uh, the narrator of our story, he even tells us that the content of Peter's vision was repeated three times. So the question is why? Why the repetition? I mean, it's obvious that all of these verses are intended to go together. It's just one story. But if it's just one story, why so much repetition in that one story? I think the answer is, is pretty clear. Luke repeated himself so many times in our story because this is a big deal. Repetition in Scripture is designed to get our attention, and this is a big deal. It represents a major shift in the life of the early church and a significant transformation in Christian theology about salvation, about evangelism, about missions. Well, for us, just how big of a deal it is might, might be lost on us. We don't live in the same context, so it's hard for us to relate. But I think if we take some time to reflect on the big picture, we can begin to understand the significance of what's going on. Up to this point in history, Christianity was just a small sect of Judaism. Not at all what we think of today as a separate religion. Almost all the early Christians were Jews. Jesus was seen as the Jewish Messiah. The Jesus movement was thought to be just the next stage of development in Judaism. One of the most important ideas for us to recognize uh, today is that the Jews thought of themselves as completely separate and distinct from non-Jews. The idea of complete distinction and separation was, was built into Jewish identity at the time. For the Jews, there were two kinds of people in the entire world. There were Jews and everybody else. And there was a rigid wall of separation between the two. The everybody else is referred to in Scripture as the nations, or sometimes just called Gentiles. The Jews were ethnically, socially, culturally distinct. And this was, for them, based on the commandments of God. We know from the Old Testament that God chose Israel to be the vehicle of His story of salvation. Because God wanted to preserve among a people His message of salvation, and eventually, through those people, bless all nations. Jewish separation from other cultures and legal codes about what was clean and unclean, like, like came out in our story today, were symbols of God's holiness and the serious consequences of sin. 
Among all the chaos that surrounded the Jews, worshiping false gods, destructive immorality, Jewish separation was supposed to be, at, at, at the very least, among other things, a witness to the holiness of God, a means of preserving His plan of salvation. We see this in various commands throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 10.10, 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, just like what Peter was doing in our story today. Leviticus 18.24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And we have this repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament, these commands for the Jews to be distinct and unique and separate from everything else around them. Passages like, it, like this make it clear that Jews were to be distinct and unique among the nations of the earth. But in addition to this, it's also clear that from the very beginning, God intended to bless all nations through the earth, through the preservation of the Jews as His people. Separating the Jewish people and making them distinct is not presented to us in Scripture as an end game. Instead, Jewish distinction is seen as a temporary measure in order to bring about the main goal. Again, we're able to see this plainly in the Bible in passages that you all are probably familiar with. Genesis 26.4, for example, God is speaking to Isaac, the son of Abraham, reiterating the promise that he gave to Abraham. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Psalm 67, 1 through 4. Psalm 67 was our benediction at the end of the service last week. And here again, we see emphasized that God's saving power will be seen among all nations. And of course, this idea is repeated by Jesus himself. You're probably familiar, you remember Mark chapter 11, Jesus is driving out the money changers from the temple, and he quotes, um, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And of course, Matthew 28, 19, the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Later on, after the events of Acts 10, where we are today, we see that that idea is eventually repeated all throughout the New Testament, such as Paul's letters to the churches. He, he interprets the Old Testament teachings with an emphasis on the inclusion of the Gentiles. So just for an example, Galatians 3.8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. But at the point in history covered by our story today, these events are at a time at which uh, all this is still being worked out. Right? It seems clear that at this point, most Jewish Christians maintain the notion of complete ethnic separation and distinction. The only way to cross that barrier between Jew and Gentile would be for a Gentile to fully convert to Judaism. Since, since following Christ was a Jewish religious matter, then they would have thought quite naturally that any non-Jew who wanted to follow Christ must first convert to Judaism. Did you notice in our passage twice we have reference to a group of people called the circumcision party? right? Peter's companions, and then in Jerusalem when Peter's giving his report. They were called this because they were known for holding the line. Anyone who wanted to be a Christian must first be fully converted to Judaism, which was most significantly seen in the act of circumcision. Now, parents, I'll let you explain that to your young ones later today, but I think it's pretty easy to understand uh, there weren't many converts to Judaism, So these Christians, Peter's companions and the, the ones in Jerusalem, hadn't yet figured things out. 
at these seemingly contradictory ideas, the idea on the one hand of complete Jewish separation and distinction and then being unique among all the nations, and then on the other hand, the idea from the beginning that God was going to bless the nations through them, these two ideas are visibly seen and they're present in our story today, and it seems like everything is coming to a head. God is using the interaction between Peter and Cornelius to drive home the point and introduced what, what must have seemed like at the time to be a cultural and theological shift of gigantic proportions. God is showing in a very clear and unmistakable way that in Christ, He has erased the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. The gospel, the message of forgiveness from sin and salvation through Jesus Christ is not limited to the Jews only, but rather is a message for all people. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for everyone. Jesus is Lord of all, and the message of salvation is to be taken to the nations. This is the one main point of our passage today. So, so now that we see that, that big picture, let, let's go back to our story and look at some of the important ideas that come out in some of the details. So in the beginning, we're introduced to Cornelius. Cornelius is the Gentile, the non-Jew. But what's striking about Cornelius, at least I, I found it very interesting, is that Cornelius is not presented to us as a heathen, a pagan, an idol worshiper, right? It, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Cornelius is presented to us as a pious, religious, devout person. He fears God. He gives money. He prays. We're even told that God hears his prayers and responds. He has a good reputation among all the Jews. He's an all-around good guy, and even the Jews of our story would have recognized that he was a good person because in every way, Cornelius' lifestyle model was a model for Jewish piety. What comes out in the story, though, is that Cornelius is missing something. That's why he had to send for Peter, Right? The angel comes to him and specifically tells him to go get Peter. We found that in verses 4 and 5. It's implied, but it even comes, I think, more clear in when the story is retold to us. Like in verse 22, the holy angel uh, commanded him to send for Peter to come to his house to hear what he has to say. And then later when Peter is retelling it again in Jerusalem, right? he, he tells of the vision that Cornelius had. And, and Cornelius is told that Peter will declare to you the message by which you will be saved. So it's clear that as good as Cornelius was, and he's presented as a very good person, but as good as he was, it wasn't good enough. There was something missing. Otherwise, there was no need to have Peter come and deliver the message. He did lack something, but think about it like this. Think about how the Jews would have seen Cornelius or the Jewish Christians, how they would have seen Cornelius at this time, right? They recognize how good he was. He prays. He gives money. He's a devout religious person, but he lacked one thing. For the Jewish believers, they would have thought he lacked circumcision, full conversion to Judaism as symbolized in circumcision. That's what they would have thought he lacked. But in reality, our story does indeed confirm that Cornelius is missing something. But it's not circumcision. It's forgiveness of his sins and new life in Christ. That's what he's missing. Cornelius needed to hear the message of salvation that Peter was going to bring to him. 
it, it occurs to me that perhaps there are some of you today who can relate to Cornelius. You are a good person. You're a churchgoer. You pray. You give money. But perhaps also, like Cornelius, there's something missing. If you think that describes you, then God is probably at work in your life right now. And God can use this story to reveal the missing element, just like Peter brought the message of salvation to Cornelius. Remember, though, that Peter was a Jew, and so to a large degree, uh, prominent in his mind would have been the mindset of complete separation from Gentiles. Again, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so, on his own, Peter probably wouldn't have thought to take the message of salvation to Cornelius, so God intervenes. So, while those were coming to Peter, Peter himself had a vision. He was on the roof of the house praying, and he fell into a trance, and he saw this great big tablecloth-like thing coming down. That's how I envisioned it. And there's all these animals on it, and the voice comes and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And the implication, of course, is that some of the animals, if not all of them, were of the unclean type those that were forbidden by Jewish dietary laws that come out in the Old Testament. And, of course, Peter refuses, saying that, he, that nothing uh, ever, he's never eaten anything unclean. And the response he gets is amazing, right? In verse 15, the voice comes to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. It is really an amazing thing because it seems that God is doing away with the dietary laws. And when this first happens, of course, we're told that Peter remains perplexed by it all, but you can tell that eventually Peter comes to the understanding that this vision is not primarily about dietary laws, but instead it serves as a metaphor for human beings. By the time he's with Cornelius and talking with them, but down in verse 28, Peter recounts this lesson that he learned, and he says it very clearly, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So even though at the early part of the story, Peter's perplexed, by the time he gets to Cornelius' house, he gets it. He understands that, that this is primarily about God including the Gentiles in the message of salvation. So we're told that Cornelius' entourage arrives, uh, the Spirit tells Peter about the men, and he tells Peter to go back with them. In verse 20, rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. At this point, a question occurs to me, maybe the same question occurred to you. Why didn't the Lord Jesus Christ simply reveal Himself directly to Cornelius? Why didn't God just reveal Himself directly to Cornelius and give him the message of salvation without the need for Peter? I mean, after all, there's lots of visions going on. Clearly, God could have communicated directly to Cornelius. And you remember just a few weeks ago, right, we were studying about the conversion of Saul and what happens. The Lord Jesus himself appears to Saul. So why not here? Why not have God directly reveal the message of salvation to Cornelius without Peter having to be involved? Well, I, th I think there's two answers. The first one should be the most obvious. Uh, God was removing the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And this could be most vividly accomplished by having a Jew take the message of salvation to a Gentile. That's the main point of the passage. 
But I think also, what's abundantly clear from the days of Jewish, uh, Jesus' ministry all the way up to where we are uh, in this point of church history, God's plan is for human beings to take the message of salvation to the nations. This is our task. You remember last week, Rob reminded us that as Christians, we are all by nature missionaries. When, when our family, we were still in process, uh, trying to figure out whether or not God was leading us to go to Martinsville to be a part of the new church plant. And um, we had several family discussions, and I remember one of them in particular, our oldest son, Martin, no connection there between the names, it's Martin and Martinsville, um, we didn't know in advance, I promise. But Martin spoke uh, wisdom to us that day. As we were talking, everybody was, was, had, had a chance to share, and Martin said, we should go. I was pretty confident. Why, Martin? Tell us. Why, why are you saying that? He said, well, the people in Martinsville need the gospel. It's the church's job to take them the gospel. We're part of the church, so we should go. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that logic. Don't you love it when God uses your children to speak wisdom into your life? As Christians, we are missionaries. We don't need to wait for a special sign or vision from God. The day that we were adopted into God's family, that was our commissioning day. God personally has commissioned us as missionaries. We've all been called to take the message of Christ wherever we go and with whomever we come into contact. Does that mean that all of us are going to go overseas or go off to other cities like Martinsville to plant churches? No. But it does mean that each of us is Christ's ambassador. It does mean that there are some here that God will lead to go to specific places. And it does mean that we are all missionaries. And like Peter, we must remain open, open to God's leading, and we must go. Of course, in this case, the Spirit directed Peter to go to Caesarea and meet Cornelius, and so he went. Now, when Peter went to Cornelius' house, um, something interesting happened. Did, that, did, did Cornelius' greeting of Peter, did that strike you as interesting, right? In uh, verses 25 and 26, Peter gets to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. I suppose, in one way of looking at it, Cornelius' greeting is to be expected. I mean, given the fact that he was told about Peter in this, by this angelic visitor, under those kinds of circumstances, maybe it's only natural uh, for Cornelius to think that Peter is somebody really, really special. But Peter immediately rejects this. He doesn't let Cornelius elevate him uh, to this superior position, and he emphasizes the fact that he's just a man. The wording there implies that Peter was saying something along the lines of, uh, uh, I'm just like you, Cornelius, only a man. I think um, this verse is an opportunity to pause and think about a temptation that we face. Those of us who carry the message of salvation through Christ can easily make the mistake of thinking of ourselves as somehow elevated above or superior to others, especially those of us who are in any kind of Christian leadership or public ministry, the temptation is great to allow others to elevate us. I think um, this might be something that's especially applicable 
to us with some of the unique dynamics we have in our church. Any form of public or prominent Christian leadership or service can tempt us into thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And if we're not careful, we can slip into thinking that there's sort of a, a spiritual upper class above the, the common folk. Whenever we're tempted to think that way, let's respond as Peter did and make sure that we confess the fact that we are all the same. Let's remember that God is the one who is doing the work of building his kingdom, and it's only by his grace that he's called us to join him in that work. So after, after they greet one another, Peter begins to preach. And if um, it's a long passage, if I, if I could have fit all of Peter's sermon on one slot, I would have. Um, it's really amazing because in just a few sentences, we get a picture of the essential elements of what we need to know to lead, leading up to the message of salvation through Christ. We see in Peter's sermon, first, that, that God shows no partiality, right? This is the main point of our, of our story. All ethnic boundaries are now gone. God does not look at the human race as a bunch of individual groups. We also see very clearly that Jesus is Lord of all. His life, his ministry of miracles confirmed that he was carrying God's message of salvation. And that although, although he was killed as a common criminal, his resurrection served as vi- final vindication and proof that his claims were true. And then we also see in Peter's sermon that although the message of salvation was provided uniquely to the Jews, it's universal in its application. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. This is the message of salvation through Christ. I think there are two myths that Peter's sermon corrects. Two myths, two religious myths that Peter's sermon addresses and corrects. The first one is the one that's most prominent in our passage today, the myth that Jesus was only for the Jews. Peter makes it clear that Jesus is Lord of all, and the gospel message is a message for all nations. The second myth, though, that I think Peter's sermon addresses is one that perhaps is more common in our religious and cultural context. And that's, that's the idea that all you have to do is be a good person, be sincere, believe in God, and you'll go to heaven. On the contrary, Peter's message reminds us that salvation comes only to those who personally trust Christ for salvation. And it's clear, by the way, that our Cornelius and his family and friends did believe Jesus on hearing the message. Um, in, uh, in verse 44 and 45, Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. We're told that the Holy Spirit fell on them, and that uh, as evidence of the Holy Spirit, we're told that they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. Uh, but notice the amazement of those who came with Peter. Now, now remember, to this point in the story, uh, we're, we're told that the, the ones who came with Peter were part of the circumcised party, right? Uh, remember that this was a way to refer to those who remained convinced that uh, in order to become a Christ follower, one first had to be a full convert to Judaism. Uh, represented again in the final step of circumcision. 
Um, and, and later, when Peter gives his report in Jerusalem, we see he's confronted by exactly the same thing in the first couple of verses of chapter 11. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So apparently they had heard about this event with Cornelius, this was, and this was their primary concern, that Peter had made himself ceremonially unclean by having a meal with these Gentiles. And in response to this, Peter recounts for them what happened, uh, including the evidence of the Holy Spirit coming on them. And really, this whole episode uh, should sound familiar to us. Since we've been studying the book of Acts for a while, it should sound very familiar, right? You have Peter preaching. You have people speaking in tongues. You have a message about Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy and about salvation through Him. It should remind you of Pentecost, Right, Acts chapter 2, right? Throughout Scripture, we see God using miracles to confirm and authenticate a message and the messenger. In Acts 2, uh, it was a miraculous sign of them all speaking in tongues. It was a sign to the Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. It was a sign to those who were not yet believers, and many of them uh, who were there believed in Jesus as a result of witnessing that miracle. And if you remember, this happened also in our passage from last week. When Aeneas was healed and Tabitha was raised from the dead, what happened? It validated Peter's message, and many came to Christ as a result. Well, in our passage today, it's almost like that pattern is flipped on its head, right? The pattern is someone brings a message. God gives a miracle to validate the message, and then as a result, many believe it and come to Christ. In our story today, we have a miraculous sign, but it's not given to the unbelievers. It's given to the Jewish Christians. God pours out this miracle on them, and as a result of the the Gentiles speaking in tongues in this miraculous way, it it was a, a sign to validate that their conversion was the real thing, that it was authentic. The miracle had its intended effect. They knew that God saved the Gentiles, and given them new life in Christ. We, I like the way that the last verse in, in, that we read, Acts eleven eighteen, is rendered in the Holman Bible. So God has granted repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. This was a monumental thing that happened. In the coming weeks, uh, as we continue to study the book of Acts, we'll see that they still had some things to work out, Right? especially related to dietary laws. But from this point forward, the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ becomes a prominent message in the New Testament. We see this in the book of Ephesians, especially prominent way, and I'd encourage you to read Ephesians uh, in light of our passage today, right? Just to give an example. Chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why does he have to say this? He has to say it because up to this point, it was pretty clear that you had Jews and non-Jews, and there was a wall of separation between the two. But God was removing that wall, had removed that wall of separation. In chapter 4, Paul says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Why did Paul have to repeat one so many times? It's because up to this point there were two, Jew and non-Jew. 
And God removed that wall of separation, and the two are united together in Christ as one. Through Christ, God is able to bring peace, not just peace in reconciling mankind to himself through Christ Jesus, but also peace among the believers, overcoming these cultural and ethnic divisions. So, well, what's, what's the takeaway from all this? What, what do we do? How, how do we respond to a passage of Scripture like this? Well, first, I think that most of us in this room should be able to relate on some level with Peter, right? Like Peter's, we're followers of Christ. Now, Peter was confronting uh, the Jew-Gentile separation that was unique to his context. Now, we don't have that particular problem, maybe, but we do have our share of divisions. There are times when we might be tempted to consider, think about certain people or groups, and say to ourselves, well, uh, the gospel's not, not for them. But one of the most clear points of this story is that whoever we think is excluded is included in the message of salvation through Christ. And it is indeed our task to take the gospel even to them. But also, I think that many of us probably haven't yet responded to God's call on our lives as missionaries. Let me just tell you where I'm at with all this. you, you might remember the middle of last year as Larry was teaching us, there was one Sunday in particular where he issued the challenge to us. He said, is your yes on the table? In other words, are, are we willing to commit to following God's leadership in our lives even if we don't know in advance where that's going to be or how or among whom? And I have to tell you, when he gave us that challenge, My yes was not on the table. I may have told you it was, but I don't think it was. Even after that Sunday, I remember I caught Larry in the lobby, and I said, Larry, you've made me uncomfortable. You see, I had my plan. Had it all worked out, where I was going to live, what I was going to do. I even had a backup plan in case that didn't work out, where I was going to live and what I was going to do. And in reality, I just was not willing at that point to say, I'll go. I'll go. Today is our opportunity to put our yes on the table. Before we know where, how, among whom, to commit to following God's leadership in this area of our lives. It's probably also the case that some of you here today can relate to Cornelius. Cornelius was a good person, a religious person, believed in God, prayed regularly, gave money, Perhaps that describes you. And perhaps like Cornelius, you're missing one thing. Forgiveness of your sin 
and salvation through Jesus Christ. God has been working in your life and today is calling you to himself. And today is your opportunity to surrender to him. You confess your sin, ask God's forgiveness and trust in Christ for your salvation. You will receive the gift of life through Christ. If you aren't sure what to do, after the service is over, find one of our pastors or elders and say, you know what, I think I'm like Cornelius. Will you help me take the next step? However God is leading you today, would you respond to his call in your life? In just a minute, we're going to sing our last song. I just want you to maintain an attitude of prayer and commitment to God, to following his leadership, to putting your yes on the table, and surrendering to him as he's calling you today. Let's pray. God, we're grateful to you that you have included us in Christ Though we were separated and far from you, God, you brought us near. We thank you for salvation in Christ, being the message for all nations. God, would you lead us and give us courage to follow your leadership in our lives. Give us wisdom, give us understanding, Lord, and give us courage so that we can follow where you lead us today. God, we commit ourselves anew to you. Grateful for salvation that's come to us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.